Okay, if you would like to open your Bibles up to Exodus chapter 31, we are actually in a very interesting place in the book of Exodus because we don't have a whole lot of narrative left. There's not a whole lot left of the story to be told. A lot of what remains of the book um, is concerning the tabernacle and the priests and a lot of instructions that the Lord is giving Moses about how the Israelites are to worship him while they wander around the wilderness. So honestly, our uh, sermon text is basically chapter 25 through 31 and 35 through 40. But obviously, we're not going to go through all of those chapters. We're actually going to focus on the tabernacle today. And then next week, we're going to focus on the priesthood. But I do want to read chapter 31, verses 1 through 11, because it kind of summarizes everything that we're going to see. So if you'll stand with me, I'm going to read that as our sermon text today. Exodus 31, 1 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by, by name Bezaliel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and with all craftsmanship, to devise artist, artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting of stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Ohaliab, the son of Ahimsamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that you may make the, all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand lamp with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offerings with all of its utensils, and the basin and its stand. And the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense of the, for the holy place, according to all I have commanded you, they shall do. That's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The reason why I chose that passage to read is because it actually talks about all of the furnishings of the tabernacle that we are going to look at today. So actually, if you want to turn to your Bible to chapter 25, we're going to be start working through there. Honestly, this is going to be a little bit more of a lecture than anything, um, because there is a lot to, there's a lot of, there's a big theme that is going to work its way through Exodus chapter 25 that actually spans the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And it's kind of hard to see that, because when we look at this part of Exodus, it's, it's boring to some of us. It might be exhausting, because it goes into very exhaustive detail about what Moses is to do. And the Lord even says, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, you shall make it. So a lot of Exodus from now until the end focuses on making it, both the instructions and then it basically reiterates everything in chapter 35 through 39 about how the two men that God conscripted uh, to make everything actually make it. But if you look at these instructions in light of the rest of Scripture, you'll, you're going to see more than just a blueprint for a tent or a portable temple. The gospel of Jesus Christ is actually hidden in this te text like Easter eggs. So while we're going to do a quick flyover of everything, eventually I'm going to show you how so much of Exodus 25 through 31 point to Jesus Christ. So first, we're going to look at the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 25, verse 22. And also, I gave you that bulletin insert. If you want to look at it, it's going to actually have diagrams of everything I'm going to try to describe with words so you can actually visibly see what I'm trying to explain in better detail. 
So starting with the Ark of the Covenant, if anyone has seen Raiders of the Lost Ark with Indiana Jones, you know what it looks like. Watching that movie is worth seeing just the Ark reconstructed in that movie. It gives you a really good visual. But essentially it was a small box. It was made out of wood and overlaid with gold um, inside and out. It wasn't very big. It was three feet, nine, three feet nine inches long by two foot two feet three inches high and two feet three inches wide. And it was a beautiful piece of art. God tells Moses to put the testimony in the ark, which is why it's also called the Ark of the Testimony. And that includes the two tablets that the Ten Commandments are written on, as well as Aaron's staff, which buds in, in the book of Numbers, as well as some manna in a jar. And they are to carry that around and to keep that with them in the tabernacle. But the most important part of the ark was the lid. The ESV call it the atonement cover, or the ESV and the NASB call it the mercy seat. But another word for it is the atonement, tub, atonement cover. It comes, if you ever heard the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the word that the Hebrew word used to describe this cover comes from that word Kippur. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and cover the mercy seat with it to make atonement for the sins of all the people. And what's interesting about the cover, if you look at it, it has two angels or cherubim on it with their faces down and their wings spread out covering the top of the ark. So moving on through chapter 25, the next is a table of bread called the showbread. There would be 12 bread, 12 loaves of bread at all times on it. One, sorry, one to represent each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then going down to the golden lampstand, lamp I told you I'm going to be moving through these pretty fast. So the Hebrew word for lampstand is menorah, which makes sense with Hanukkah. Everyone sets out their menorah with uh, seven candles on it, one in the middle, then six branches going out from each side. But if you're, you read the text, what's interesting about the lampstand is that it has a bunch of flowers on it, a bunch of almond blossoms um, at the top to hold the candles and around the branches because it was made to look specifically like a tree, and I'll explain why it's supposed to look like a tree in a little bit. And now chapter 26 talks about the tabernacle as the structure itself. It goes into a lot of detail about the curtains, the rods, the hooks that were supposed to make up the tabernacle. But the tabernacle was essentially a portable temple that they would take with them. And the tabernacle existed for almost 500 years. It wasn't until King Solomon in about the year 960 that he commanded the Israelites to build a brick-and-mortar temple. So with Exodus being written in around 1450 going to 960, that's about 500 years that this tabernacle was the center of worship for the Israelites. Now there were a bunch of curtains to wall off everything. There was curtains to wall off the courtyard and then curtains to wall off the actual tent. And the tent was split off into two separate rooms. There was the holy place, and then the most holy place, or called the Holy of Holies. The holy place contained the, whole, the golden lampstand, the showbread, and then an altar to burn incense. While the Holy of Holies was partitioned off a little bit, ways, a little bit uh, further in the back, and it contained the Ark of the Covenant. And now woven into that curtain that was supposed to separate the holy place from the most holy place were two cherubim, two warrior angels imprinted on the back of um, sorry, on the back of the curtains. 
The holy place was 30 feet long by 15 feet wide and 15 feet tall, while the Holy of Holies was a 15-foot cube, 15 feet high, long, and wide. And now, those are just very minute details about this ancient tent. Now, why do we even care? Why, as Christians in the year 2020, why are we looking at this 1450 B.C. tent? Now, the answer is there is a lot more to expect than we expect that goes into this tabernacle. The tabernacle has a function, and that function gets right to the heart of God himself. God wants to be present with his people, and the tabernacle was the place where God was present with his people. If you look at chapter 25, verse 8, the Lord says, Let them, the people, make me a sanctuary that I might, may dwell in their midst. And that word tabernacle literally means a dwelling place. God is saying, let them make me a holy place, a sanctuary, so it may be my dwelling place, so I may be living with them. Yahweh wanted to live in the midst of his people. He wanted to pitch his tent with Israel's tents as they dwelled in the wilderness for 40 years before they entered the promised land. And now quite literally, Yahweh wanted to pitch his tent in the middle of Israel because the tabernacle was the center of the encampment. All the, the 12 tribes, three on each side, lived in their tents around the tabernacle. It's very symbolically and very literally, God wanted to live in the middle of his people. God's presence was found in the Holy of Holies and above the mercy seat. If you look at chapter 25, verse 22, the Lord tells Moses that there God will meet with him between the two cherubim that are on the ark. And in several places in the Old Testament, it says that God is enthroned above the cherubim. So the mercy seat was essentially his footstool as he was sitting on his throne as the king. He is dwelling in the tabernacle in a very real and majestic way. And another detail about God's presence in the tabernacle has to deal, do with the golden lampstand. I said it was made to look like a tree, and it was made to look like a very specific hybrid between an olive tree and an almond tree. The structure itself looked like an olive tree, but it had these almond blossoms on it to make it look like an almond tree. Now, this, these little details in this little golden menorah were supposed to echo the people back to the Garden of Eden. This lampstand was supposed to remind them of the tree of life that was set in the middle of the garden. If you look at the Garden of Eden and then the tabernacle and the temple, there are a lot of crossover between the two. First and most importantly, God and his people both, lit, both were present in the tabernacle and temple and in the Garden of Eden. Second, Adam and Eve were told to keep and to work the garden and the only other people that God commands to keep and work anything are the Levites as they kept and guarded the tabernacle as the ministers there. And then thirdly, the decor of the tabernacle and then eventually the temple, even greater, um, greater symbolism included carvings of palm trees and pomegranates and oxen. There were images of creation everywhere in the tabernacle and in the temple because it was supposed to make the people look back at the Garden of Eden to say, look at where we used to dwell, present with God. But there was another similarity between the tabernacle and Eden, which is a little more bittersweet. Now is the cherubim. The cherubim symbolize the separation between a sinful people and a holy God, both in the Garden of Eden and in the tabernacle. 
After Adam and Eve sinned, in Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24, this is what Moses writes. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he should reach his hand out and take the fruit of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So after Adam and Eve are kicked out of Eden, if you were standing on the east side of the garden and looking into it, you would see these massive angels with flaming swords guarding the tree of life so that no one could go and partake of it. But if you also stood on the eastern side of the tabernacle, if you were inside the holy, of hol- the holy place, looking inside the holy of holies, you would see these 46-foot-tall curtains with cherubim woven very artistically in them because the cherubim were guarding the presence of God. The cherubim kept Adam and Eve out of Eden, and the unholy Israelites saw the cherubim whenever they tried to see the presence of God because there was a, an, a bridge of separation that their sin caused. And because there's that bridge of separation, we see a lot of the other furniture of the tabernacle come in, like the sacrificial altars and like the basin for cleaning. If anyone was going to go into the holy place or the most holy place, they had to offer a sacrifice for atonement and they had to ceremonially wash themselves before they could ever come in God's presence. There was a, a very symbolic but a very real sinful tinge to everybody that kept them unable to be in God's presence. And even more to the point, the whole priesthood was set up because unholy people could not approach God on their own terms. The priests were the only ones that could offer the sacrifices, and only the high priest on the one day of atonement could enter in to the Holy of Holies and be before the Ark of the Covenant. There is a very big gap of separation between a sinful people and a holy God that is woven into the symbolism and the structure of the tabernacle. But the clearest evidence of the, of the symbolism, or the clearest evidence of the separation that the tabernacle is supposed to display is the fact that death is the punishment for mismanaging the holy things of the tabernacle. If you went into the Holy of Holies and you were anyone other than the high priest and it was any day other than the Day of Atonement, the punishment was death. If you put your hand on the Ark of the Covenant, which had these eyelets that allowed you to carry it with poles so you didn't have to touch the holy, the holy ark. If you touched it, you died. It happened to a man named Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And if you went before the Lord and you offered un, unsanctioned sacrifices, you died. Even though you were a priest and you offered an unauthorized sacrifice, you died. In Leviticus 10, it happens to Aaron's own sons, Nadab and Abihu, says they brought strange fire before the Lord as priests, and they were consumed by that fire. When you look at the function of the tabernacle, for lack of a better term, there's a volatile holiness about it, where if you don't go about things the right way, you come before a holy God as a sinful person. If you come before a holy God as a sinful person, you die. But the thing is, it's a beautiful thing that the Lord wanted to dwell in the midst of his people, but it's almost, almost contradictory that it would be so difficult for, a, for his people to dwell with him. 
because there is such a stark contrast between God's holiness and man's sinfulness. Even the fact that God is an infinite God, he cannot be contained by anything. The fact that an infinite God wanted to dwell in a finite place in the Holy of Holies, it, there's some tension there that's kind of hard for us to live with. King Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, was feeling this tension. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon is dedicating the temple, and this is what he says. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less will this house that I built? Solomon got that, yes, God was going to dwell in a very real way in the temple that was replacing the tabernacle, but he knew that God was so vast and infinite that it was still impossible for him to actually do so. God's old covenant people were in a situation that almost seemed contradictory because they had God's real presence, but they felt the real separation. They had true access to God, but God was still unapproachable. God was infinite, but still in a finite place. They were in a temple that looked like a garden that was supposed to make them long for the garden that their original father and mother, Adam and Eve, were in, a garden temple of Eden. But when we see all of these things and all of the structure of the tabernacle and all of the things that they symbolize and preach to us, we as the New Testament, the New Covenant people of God actually start to see how this tabernacle points to Jesus Christ in a very clear way. The tabernacle, its structure and its function, served as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things that Jesus was going to establish. When I read John 1, when it says in verse 14 that Jesus took on flesh and dwelled among us, that verse actually is translated in other Bibles as Jesus tabernacled with us. Because finally, this God dwelling with his people that, has, that was in a very ambiguous, ambivalent way in the tabernacle where an infinite God was dwelling in a finite place had now been fulfilled when God took on flesh. And truly, the whole deity of the heavenly God was now in Christ's body here on earth. Even more that on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, the high priest would go behind the curtain, behind the cherubim, being the one and only person that could go behind the curtain to smear blood on the mercy seat to make an atonement or propitiation for the sins of the people. It happened once a year, every year. But the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Christ was able to do that once and for all. The high priest, what he would do in the tabernacle is a shadow and a copy of what Christ would do for eternity. In Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12, this is what it says. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through a, the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has repeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice 
of himself. The writer of the Hebrews is saying to these Jewish Christians, you guys remember the curtain that was in the temple. You know, you saw that very visible sign of the separation between you and God. But Jesus Christ was able to go and do what the high priest could not do, which is once for all go behind the heavenly curtain that the earthly curtain was supposed to portray and sacrifice himself once and for all so that the curtain is done away with. There is no need for another high priest to go behind the curtain because Jesus Christ did it once and for all. Jesus Christ both symbolically and also very literally destroyed the curtain. The same moment when Jesus Christ died on the cross, both the, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew testify that the curtain in the temple that had the cherubim on it split in two from top to bottom. When Jesus went behind the heavenly curtain to sacrifice himself once and for all, he was doing away with every other earthly sacrifice that the Israelites thought they needed to do. So he destroyed the curtain. He destroyed the temple. And now there is no barrier between God and man because Jesus Christ destroyed everything that kept us from God. And even more, the promises that we have in eternal life don't just destroy the temple, but his promises point to us living in the true and better Eden. The new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, they are laced with images taken out of Exodus chapter 25 and following so that we see that in the new heavens and new earth, in the city of God, we are truly dwelling with God face to face in a way that they only got to experience a little bit in the tabernacle. This is what the Apostle John sees in Revelation 21. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. There's no need for the golden menorah in the tabernacle anymore or in the temple anymore because Jesus Christ himself is the lampstand. And even more, that lampstand that was supposed to symbolize the tree of life, it's not needed anymore because the tree of life is now in the New Jerusalem where we are going to live. John writes again, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So that little golden lampstand that was made to look like a tree that seems like a very minute detail in the tabernacle that we see is now fulfilled in the very real tree of life that bears fruit for our healing when we go and live with God. Another thing, do you remember the dimensions of the Holy of Holies? It was 15 feet on each side, a 15-foot cube. If you look at Revelation 21, verses 15 and 16, it talks about the dimensions of the New Jerusalem. And the one who spoke with me, this is John writing again, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. Now, 12,000 stadia is almost 2,000 miles, so you don't need to look into how big it actually is, but look at the dimensions of it. 
It's a 12,000 stadia cube, which is supposed to mimic the 15-foot cube that was in the tabernacle. You might ask why. It's because God's presence is fully in the new Jerusalem. God is present with his people there. God and his people finally have full relationship, full dwelling face-to-face relationship with each other. What was imaged in just this little space, partitioned off by some curtains, points to the greatest place you and I will ever experience, which is living with God for eternity. So these chapters might seem like nothing more than very exhaustive details, but they're not. They are a theme that are woven throughout Scripture that show us that one day we are going to be present with God without anything in our way, without any angel, without any curtain, without any sin. These things are echoing Eden, that place where we were supposed to live, fully present with God, and they are a signpost pointing us to the eternal life that we are going to have with God in the new heavens, in the new earth, where we are going to have that presence with God once and for all and for eternity. And it's all because we have a great high priest who is able to go behind the heavenly curtain to do what the earthly priests did to the earthly did behind the earthly curtain for almost for thousands of years he did once and for all. So now we will dwell with God forever because Christ offered his own blood for our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are a lot of things about the Old Testament that are intimidating. A lot of things about the Old Testament that seem insignificant. But your word is breathed out so that every single word is profitable for teaching. And Lord, you have taught us through your word that this little portable tent that existed for about 500 years that just wandered around the wilderness and wandered around Canaan, it's in this little tent of wood and gold and linen that you give us such a clear and beautiful image of your son because it's your son that offered himself to you and that you sent to make atonement for our sins and we don't need the blood of bulls and calves to be smeared on the mercy seat of a piece of gold because your son offered himself his own blood to be the propitiation for our sins once and for all, securing for us an eternal redemption. So Lord, when we open our Bibles, let us look for these little Easter eggs that tell of the gospel. When we open the Bible, let us see that with Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, all of it point to Jesus Christ. Even these little dimensions that you gave Moses so that he could build your dwelling place. And Lord, we look forward to where we experience your dwelling place personally, where we see your face with our own eyes, where we see Christ as he actually is, and we get to experience that for eternity. Lord, we love you, and it's in this name of your Son that we pray. Amen.